Pastor Jamie asked if I would come back and and as Pastor Meredith of this church serving here for 25 years of my life, if I would address and talk to you about this campaign compelled by, by grace. You know, I'm convinced that God gives one person on this earth that loves us like his love, purely unconditional love. That's mom. I loved my mom. I lost her in 84. I still miss her. Mom and I used to have a lot of talks. Now, I, 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 I would be irritating at times. I was uh, 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 a little precocious as far as that goes. As a matter of fact, in the back of my uh, Mini Cooper, you see my license plate says skidoo. Uh, that was my mom's second favorite phrase for me, Daryl. <laughs> skidoo. Get out of here. You're bothering me. But, but I loved hanging around my mom because mom was one of the, the, the few people, maybe the only person who ever really took me seriously. And, uh, um, you know, being a very unattractive child, uh, it was hard to find people who would take me seriously. And I remember in some of our talks with my mom, she, she would repeatedly, and she would do this again and again over years. She, she would look at me and she said, Daryl, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? And I don't know where I came up with it. Most of the things I say, I don't know where I came up with it. But even as a little kid, I would come back with, I want to kick a dent. Mom, I want to kick a dent. She says, well, a dent in what? I said, I want to kick a dent in history. See, even as a young boy, I really did not want to waste my life. I, I wanted to do something significant, something of worth, something, something. That was a little bit of a footprint that maybe I was here well, if I live as long as my father, that puts me in the red zone of my life. I have about another 20 years, maybe less. And he brings up the question, well, what's a dent? And Daryl, have you kicked a dent in anything? 45 years ago, I gave my life to be a pastor. My heart, my, my abilities, my talents, anything that I have, anything I have to offer, I was going to give it away as a pastor. I was even given a job description by the Apostle Paul himself in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says that, that Christ, when he ascended up to heaven, gave gifts to the church. Gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and, and teachers. But he also gave pastors, shepherds to the church. And the reason, he says, was to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now before they can do the work of ministry, he says they need to be built up as the body of Christ. Well, 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 built up as the body of Christ. What does that look like? Until, oh there it is. Here's what it's going to look like. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. To the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. So we no longer be children. Well if there's going to be a dent, that's going to be the dent. That there would be believers that would be mature with the fullness of Christ. That would be strong in their faith. Now the only question is, what do one of those folks look like? If that's what we're going for here. Mature believers, strong in faith, spiritual in nature. If those are the people that make up a church that is a healthy church then what does that look like? Well, I found a guy. 
And I found him in the Bible. I um, feel badly I, I wasn't his pastor. But, but the Apostle John was. Turn, if you will, to the last letter John ever writes. Third John. Remember, he wrote the Gospel of John. Then, then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And uh, Domitian put him there because he was the last living apostle and was a threat to the Roman Empire because Christianity was beginning to grow. So they put him on the island. Jesus, remember, he gets a visit from Jesus and, and John receives the book of... These are easy questions. I want you successful. The book of Revelation. Well, Domitian gets himself assassinated. And around 80, 95, 96, John gets off the island of Patmos. He goes back to Ephesus, back to the place he left the mom of Jesus. Matter of fact, remember when Jesus was on the cross? said, John, you take care of my mother as I go. John takes her as his own mom, and he takes her to Ephesus, and that's where she is, according to tradition, actually buried. John returns to Asia Minor, and he betakes the spiritual oversight as the presbyteros, the aged one, over all those churches there in modern-day Turkey. What is interesting is that talk about a, 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 a source of information about Jesus. This is the guy. He's the last living eyewitness apostle. So he knows all about Jesus. He told us in John and, and then what he does, he writes three letters. He writes 1 John. Because these, these second, third generation believers are a little insecure in their faith. Want to know, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? Then he writes 2 John. Because he's got this one lady, it's an open letter to a lady that she just wants to love everybody, so she's loving false teachers and, and everything else, so he gives a little instruction. But he comes to this last letter, only 15 verses, there's no chapters. And most people never read this letter. How many of you have read and studied 3 John? I thought so. <laughs> and yet, it's in here, it's called one of the twin sisters with, first, I mean, with 2 John, and the reason is it also is an open letter means it's written to a person, but it's meant to be read to the church. And this person is written to, his name's Gaius. This is the guy. This is the guy. This, this is the mature one. That this is a model of a human being who's strong in faith and mature in nature and spiritually minded. I want a church of a whole bunch of these Gaiuses. And so John writes this last letter, and it's almost like John's last gift before he leaves the planet. John says, I want to at least make sure you all know the kind of Christian I'm talking about. The kind of person of faith and strength and maturity that makes up the church of Jesus Christ that honors the Father. And so I'm going to write this, law, this open letter to this man named Gaius, because I want to introduce Gaius to the rest of the church for all time. And that's exactly what I want to do this morning to you because this Gaius, he kicks his own dent in, in history. Notice verses 1 to 4 here in 3 John. John says, the elder, the presbyteros, the aged one, everybody knows who, who this is, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. We're not sure who, who, who this particular Gaius is. Because it was a pretty common name. We got a lot of Gaises running around at this time. We had one in Derby, One in Macedonia that traveled with Paul. We have one in Corinth. Uh, Julius Caesar. Remember him? Et tu brute? Ah, ah. Remember? His first name was what? Take a wild guess. Gaius. His grandnephew. Caesar Augustus. Who, who put out the edict. 
that all have to return to their home of birth for taxation. He was the one that gave the edict that caused Joseph and Mary to go down to, to Bethlehem and that the Jesus would be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies of Micah. Guess what his first name was? Caesar Augustus. Gaius. So there's a lot of Gaius around. We don't know for sure which one this guy is, but we do know this. Four times in this letter, John, John says, this guy is beloved. This guy's beloved of God. This guy's doing it right. And this guy, he says, I want you to learn. I want to introduce him to you because of his spiritual maturity. Verse 2, beloved, he says, this is written to Gaius, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. You know, John equates this guy's spiritual health with his physical health. He, he's basically saying, you know, I hope you are spiritually as healthy as your soul is. Because you are spiritually so healthy, I pray you are physically that healthy. You ever thought about what if our physical health was tied to our spiritual health? How many of us would be taken out on stretchers this morning? But this guy, his soul was so strong, his faith so solid, that, that, that John's wish is, I wish you were physically as strong as you are spiritually. Verse 3, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. The brothers are talking about this guy. People are talking about this guy in the church because he's so spiritually strong and mature and spiritual in nature. This guy's a pastor's dream come true. If we could only get him on the board. Anyhow, it says, as indeed you are walking in truth. And so John says, I have, I have, he's an old man here. He, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Because Gaius is walking in the truth. What does that mean, walking in the truth? Because he walked in the truth and made him mature. Made it so that his name would be so we could read about this guy as John's last gift of what a Christian really looks like when they're mature and strong and spiritual in nature. What is truth? He's walking in truth. Kind of what Pilate asked. Remember when Jesus was being tried? What is truth? The word is aletheon. And the word aletheon literally means not to forget. To remember. So to walk in truth is somebody who walks and they don't forget. They remember. Remember what? Biblical truth is remembering what God has said. Well, what has God said? <laughs> Later on, John gets so old, so physically weak, he cannot even walk. Tradition tells us that they would carry John from church to church. And all John would say, people would be excited, here comes the Apostle John, the last living eyewitness to Jesus. We're going to hear a great sermon today. And they would basically carry John up to the front of them, and, and all he would say is, little children, love one another. He wouldn't even give a benediction. That's it. Little children, love one another. Well, some of the folks are a little frustrated at this. I mean, he knows all of this stuff we want to know. But all he would say is, little children, love one another. And when he was finally asked, why, why is that all you'll say? His response was, because this was the Lord's command. You know, I find interesting about that. Here's John, the apostle, 
Last living eyewitness to the life and resurrected Jesus. And when he says, you know, it all comes down to one thing, one command. The Lord said, love one another. Why would John come down to that's the thing? That's the one thing. That's the issue. You know, I think I know, not because I'm intelligent, because John told me. Not, not John didn't tell me. He told me in the scriptures. Because in John 13, in his gospel, he gives a very interesting account about Jesus giving a command. Now, if you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find out Jesus did not walk around giving commands. I command you to do this. I command. He would command the, you know, the, the storms to stop. But he wouldn't command a lot of, he would go around commanding stuff. But in John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus kind of breaks what he normally does. And he says, now this command I give unto you. Boy, ears perk up. What do you mean he normally doesn't do this? And what command did he give? I command that you love one another as I have loved you. For by your love for one another, all men, people who don't know you, people you don't know, will know you're my disciples. You're not a hypocrite. You are who you claim to be. You do what you claim to say and that you promise. You see, the love that we have, the way we treat each other, is the very apologetic that we are who we claim to be, followers of Jesus, his disciples. But John didn't stop there. John in chapter 17 records for us a prayer that Jesus makes to the Father. And what's fascinating about this prayer is the only place I find in the scripture we're mentioned. You say, you're kidding. No. And I'm not reading into it. It's where John 17, Jesus says, Now, Lord, I pray not only for these who are with me, these apostles, but I also pray for those who will come to faith because and on their account. Who's he praying for? That's us, folks. That's us. And what does he pray for? Lord, I pray that they would be one, even as you and I are one, so that, so here's the purpose clause, so that the world will know that I came from the Father. The way we treat each other is also the apologetic that Jesus is who he claimed to be, from the Father, and then he changes lives, and he makes people spiritually strong. He makes people spiritually mature. So they walk in truth. They do not forget this command of loving one another. Well, again, what is spiritual health? I mean, I, I've, been, I've been studying this for 45 years because I want to spot you when you're doing it well. I um, have the privilege on Monday nights for Phoenix Seminary as president of the seminary to teach president's class here. And we just finished the book of Romans. And the book of Romans talks about how Jesus Christ basically justified us by dying on the cross, how we're preserved, the sovereignty of God, basically it's his purpose that will be accomplished. It's a phenomenal book. But then you get to chapter 14. And chapter 14, Paul gets to it. Paul says, now, based on all, all that God has done for us, what Jesus did to build his church, now for you, he says, now, once and for all, Commit your body as a living sacrifice. Aren't you glad it's living? But a living sacrifice to your father. In chapter 13, he talks about our relationship with the government. And then in 14, he says, now, stop. Stop it. Stop what? 
Stop judging each other. Stop holding each other in contempt. Some people there in the church in Rome, they were a little legalistic. They were raised, you know, Jewish, had all kinds of religious laws. And so when you didn't do Christianity their way, they would judge you. Paul says, stop it. Now, those who were Gentiles, who kind of just kind of thought this was all new thing, they weren't legalistic, they were free in Christ, and yet these other Christians would have all these rules and rituals, they'd hold them in contempt. Say, you, 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 what, what, jerks. Paul says, stop it. Stop holding contempt. Stop judging one another. Each one of us. You didn't die for me. I didn't die for you. I'm not your Lord. You're not mine. Don't be telling me how I will live out my life to honor my father. I will do it the way Cajun French do it. <laughs> and you'll do it however you do it. It's in this diversity in unity that's the miracle of the whole thing. But stop it. Stop judging and holding each other in contempt. Then in verse 10 of Romans 14, he puts the big teeth. And that's when he says, don't stop judging each other. Don't you know we will all stand before the bema toss, the judgment seat of God? And right now we kind of go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought when I came to Christ, I'm not going to be judged. No, you're not going to be judged for your sin. Again, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who, are in, those who are in Christ. Our sin was judged on the cross when Jesus Christ received the wrath of God for it. So I'm not going to be judged for my sin. But I am going to be evaluated, judged for something when I stand before Christ. Well, well, what is that something I'm going to be evaluated on? Well, what's the context of Romans 14? The way we treat each other. Do you understand? I will stand before Christ and I'll give an account how I treated you and how I treated people. Whether, as John said, John would stand there and say, Daryl, they were carrying me around and I was telling you it would come down to this. Little children, how do you treat each other? And most importantly, how do you treat people you don't know? Because look at what he says here. Verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do. You are living your faith in all your efforts for these brothers who are strangers to you, and these strangers to you testify of your love before the church. You do well. Do you know the purest form of love? And by the way, remember, love is not initially an emotion. How do we know that? Because Christ commands it. You cannot command an emotion. You can generate an emotion, create an emotion, but you cannot command an emotion. When something is commanded, it's an act of your will. You make a choice. So when Christ commands us to love the way we treat each other, what is the choice I'm supposed to make? The choice to, the word love, agape, means to recognize the worth. Recognize the worth. What worth? That every human being bears the image of God. The Imago Dei. Every human being is made in the image of God. And only the children of God recognize that. And worth to the Father. How much are people worth to the Father? For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten. Hello. We are worth the Son to the Father. Because that's who he provided, gave 
so that he could redeem us to himself again. So what is love? It's when I choose to recognize the worth of another human being, that they bear the image of God and they are worth Jesus to the Father. That's a choice I make. In other words, let's make it simple. I treat everybody the way I would treat Jesus. But you want to know the purest form of love? So he says to strangers. Do you know the purest form of love is hospitality? Even the word be hospitable, it's literally the word a lover of strangers. You want to know why? Because if I recognize your worth, your worth may be because of what you're worth to me. You're my child. You're my wife. You're my friend. You know, or maybe you're going to take me out to lunch. I'm going to get something back maybe. So I'm not necessarily treating you special because you have inherent worth. It's because you've got some value and I might just be another consumer. But the reality is, stranger, somebody I do not know, and yet I recognize their worth. They bear the image of God and their worth, the son to the father. It's in hospitality. It's in the way, not only the way we treat each other, but the way we treat people we do not know. That's the great apologetic of who Christ is and who we are as disciples of Christ. That's what this man Gaius was, was all about. That's why in Galatians 5.14, Paul says, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? I know you got a hundred different things that you do thinking it's Christian. I go to church, I pray, you know, I, I do this, I got an Easter dress. You know, you got a hundred things you do that you, that's Christian. Paul says in Galatians 5.14, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? You want to do something that fulfill, fulfills the law of Christ? Yeah. What is it? It tells you, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does the same thing in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He says, now, you who are spiritual, when somebody stumbles, you bear their burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. James used a different word in James chapter 2, verse 8. James says, you want to fulfill the royal law of Christ? Yeah. What do I do? Love your neighbors yourself. Why neighbor? Jesus said, love one another. But Paul says to fulfill the law of Christ in this purest form, neighbor. Why? Because we don't always know who our neighbors are. We've got neighbors here in Scottsdale. And most of them, we don't know who they are. Well, he finishes his comments on this Gaius. He says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. They accept nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support, underwrite, financially help and partner with people like these who make the name known that we may be fellow workers, partners with the truth. They go out to make known the name. What do you think that means? Make known the name. Most people in Scottsdale and Phoenix Chandler and Tempe and the area, they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue who God is, what God is like. You know, God made us in his image and it's like we return his favor. So we make him in our image. Take something you like and like, you know, McDonald's, supersize it. That's got to be God. God. 
Remember, and I shared this many times, but I'll do it again because Peter says, keep reminding them, keep reminding them. Remember, Moses is in deep mud. Exodus 33. They had, remember, he receives the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and there are people having a party with the golden calf. Moses gets, comes down, and he's ticked. Remember, he breaks the two tablets. He's convinced God's going to just wipe them out from the desert. So he goes up Mount Sinai, and he basically says, God, show me your glory. What, what, are, you, what are you going to do to us? And remember what he's asking when he says, God, show me your glory. He's saying, God, what is it about you you want us to know? He answers it in Exodus 34 when he says, my glory is my name. It's who I am. It's what I want people to know about me. And then God spells it out. He says, I want them to know my graciousness, my compassion. I am slow to get angry. He says, I want them to know about my forgiveness, truth. And then twice he says, make sure they know my loving kindness. Remember the Hebrew word hesed? It's all about caring about the well-being of another. You see, a child of God, a mature, a spiritually-minded human being in the church, they are mature, they are strong when they have the heart of their father. And their heart of the father is all about the well-being of others. I read a philosopher just last week. He said, man's oldest exercise in moral philosophy is the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness. Because that's what we're all born with and that's where we all end up with unless we're changed. Me, myself, and I, the blessed trinity, my whole life pretty well is focused on this. If there's going to be any change in my life that anyone's ever going to see is when they see less of this selfishness and they see more about I am really about the well-being of others because that's what my father is like and that's what honors my father. And one day I'll be evaluated at the Bema seat of Christ and I'm going to be evaluated on how I treated people, how I invested in the people, how I did everything I could do for people. Gaius kicked his dent in history. He was being talked about in the community. You do know Scotia Bible Ch uh, Church is talked about in this community. It's been so for years. And you want to know why? We, Bill, oh, Bill, where'd Bill go? Oh, great, Bill, he's gone, you know. <laughs> Forget Bill, because see you, Ann. All right, tell Bill, I don't want to embarrass Bill at all, you know, but how long do you have to go to the restroom? <laughs> oh, okay, you defend him, that's fine, that's okay. Anyhow, Bill will know and Ann knows as well. We never talked here in leadership about how to grow the church in numbers. We never talked, nor did we ever did any kind of campaign to try to promote numbers, to get more people to come. But we decided at the very beginning we would never hinder people from coming. And if we had to expand the campus, when I came, this was all dirt lot. We had the gymnasium called the Sanctanasium, we called it, and that one other building. That was it. And we knew God just didn't give us a dirt lot. The people who came before you, the people I had the privilege of pastoring for 25 years, and many of those people that I had the great privilege of bearing, and you'll see some of their names in the prayer garden, they were the ones who were spiritually strong and mature and they were the ones that were more concerned 
about the well-being of others, to love their neighbors more than themselves, and they took a risk. And they built this campus. They built this campus. Why? So that we could send a message to this community, come out of the darkness, and let us teach you how to walk in the light, how to walk in the truth. I was made aware that there's some nonsense going around that that uh, Pastor Darrell is upset that they're going to tear a couple buildings down. The buildings you're going to tear down, folks, are cheap buildings. I know. Just look at them. They didn't cost us that much. And the whole idea of the refurbishing of this project is that when you drive down the shade, it doesn't look like a bowling alley or a business. And you don't look at two gun turrets, you know, focusing out, expecting some kind of machine gun to shoot you from Shea. All we want to do is open up the church. So when people go down Shea, they can see this is a church and we can send a message. You are welcomed here. I don't even go to this church anymore. But Holly and I sent in our pledge two weeks ago. Here's what I'm saying. I'm thrilled to hear there's a thousand folks who've made pledges. Where's the other 2,000? And I'm not telling you how much to pledge. I'm not even saying sacrifice. Because some of you may not be mature enough and care enough about the well-being of others. You're still a little too consumed with yourself. So start somewhere. Whatever it is. You know what's nice about being Pastor Emeritus is you don't have my email, and if you did, I, <laughs> I don't really care because you can't hurt me. <laughs> Say, well, we cannot give to Phoenix Seminary. Hey, that's this whole point. You're not going to give to Phoenix Seminary. You're going to give to this project. So I can say what I remember say I said a long time ago. Holly was mad at me. She said, I don't have very good filters. But I remember sharing with her, you know, Holly, it's like a body. At that time, people were saying, you know, we need to have more people, more people. And I remember, that's like, like, like your body. I could have more. Look at this big tumor here on my side. I got a whole bunch of more cells. Well, I, I, boy, I'm growing. But there are cells that simply take from the body I believe they call those cancer cells. But cells that become part of the body, they take from the body, but they give to the body because they're part of the body. Now, if you're just visiting, fine, welcome. Still, remember, you're going to be evaluated how we treat each other. But if this Scottsdale Bible Church, if this is your home, if you derive spiritual teaching, counsel, prayer, encouragement, if you're drawing upon the ministries of Scottsdale Bible Church, then you're part of this body. You do not just take from this. The people who came before, we've always had strong Christians here, mature Christians who indeed, when they stand before Christ and evaluated, they will hear, well done, faithful servant, because I wanted to open up Scottsdale Bible Church to this community and bring the lost 
and I wanted them to be able to come and have a meal with you. I wanted them to see you. I want this not to be a secret. I want this community to know it, and so I want to build some buildings. I want to open some things up so that we can send a message to this community. You are welcomed here. That's what this is all about. So, beloved, you say, well, I'm feeling like you're bullying me. Grow up. <laughs> beloved, just grow up and be what those who were sitting in these pews before you already had attained. Now it's your turn. Heavenly Father, I would pray we would be found faithful. Not cells that simply draw off because we like being entertained. We like to have this on our resume. We like to be part of this groovy church. But Father, we're part of this body. And knowing that if it all comes down to the way we treat each other, especially the way we treat people we don't know. Lord, there's a whole lot of folks in this community we don't know. Why would you not want to fund through us something that would invite them here so we might know them, so they might know you? Walk in truth. Come out of darkness into the light. Ah, oh, Father, may we be found faithful.